This is a content that is not suitable for kids like me. So we're going to try something new starting this week. I am going to include some bloopers after all of our shout outs and how to reach us and our advice so that at the very end, there's a little hidden treat for anybody who manages to make it that far. Ooh, they're all going to be of me. Welcome to Crime Crazy, the weekly true crime podcast with Aaron Plan and Diana Seacon, where we prove that we know nothing about our legal system, but we're still crazy for a good true crime story. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Diana. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I, I, you know, it has been a long day, but I'm excited to be podcasting. Yay! I feel like it's been a really long time. I do too, uh, which doesn't... Oh, well, it has. It's been a couple extra days because we recorded early last week because Jordan was coming to town. That's right. And then we recorded and on then- time this week. <laughs> what? I know. Crazy pants. I, I would say this is almost going to count as recording early because generally we try to start recording around this time and it takes a couple hours to get started. That's true. I'm so it early. We're like, yeah, on on task. Absolutely. Ahead of the game. So Jordan was in town. Yay! And Diana finally got to meet her in person for the first time ever. Finally. Right? Now I understand what everybody says about how it's so weird to hear my voice with no context because I'm so yes. used to Jordan's voice and then it came out of a person. Right. Right. <laughs> well, that's like when I came to your house the other day and walked in the room and Marie was like... I know your voice. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Thanks. Exactly. <laughs> or like how every once in a while, Amanda will still get like, are you the voice of this class? <laughs> right. 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 So Diana, in this long week, oh did you learn God. anything? I learned something amazing. Oh, I'm so excited. So you know who Rose West is? Hmm. Seems like I should, huh? Of Fred and Rosemary West? Yes. 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 So Fred killed himself um, before he was convicted, right after, I don't remember, around mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. Rosemary West is still alive. Okay. She is still in prison. And she won a baking contest recently. In prison? Uh-huh. What was she baking in prison? She made a Victoria sponge. She's allowed to bake in prison? She is allowed to bake. Apparently, she uses baking as a way to... So, apparently, she is the boss bitch of this prison. Everybody's terrified of her. Like, it's all good. But when things do get... Tensions get a little high, Mm -hmm. she bakes for everybody. And that's how she gets everybody to calm down. That's cool. And she is apparently allowed to do this. And she is allowed to use knives as long as she is supervised. Because she is a mass murderer. Right, right. Yeah, you don't want to give people knives Wait, who I'm sorry kill. she's not a mass murderer she's a serial killer but it want to be correct yeah, here yeah but yeah no she is totally allowed to bake apparently she is a very talented baker and she made a Victoria sponge and it won the prison baking contest <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of awesome right and mm. also just completely bizarre right and that was I like, like I had to, like I had to make sure it wasn't from the onion like, right <laughs> right yeah <laughs> So um, I know one of the things that happens in prisons a lot is that they they do have like where we're telling you they have access to microwaves mm-hmm. and then they can order things on commissary. But it's like weird, weird things. And so they will 
create things, which makes me laugh because I was at work the other day and the group of like young people that's on one of the floors, um, I say young people like I'm super old. <laughs> but we work for a Silicon all... Valley company. I feel like we are super it old. It is true. It's true. <laughs> they're all like 15. And they were talking about what they were creating with like the food we have in our kitchens. <gasps> and they, so somebody had, I forget, somebody had made something that was reasonable mm. and like kind of brilliant. But then somebody else was like, well, have you tried the cup of noodles, macaroni and cheese with sriracha? And everybody's like, what the Well, apparently it's amazing, but I just don't know about like microwavable cup of noodles, microwavable macaroni and cheese and sriracha like that. No, I can see where that would be amazing. <laughs> Apparently, it's amazing. Chicken flavor. That's the key. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm also more of a fan of uh, like Frank's Red Hot than Sriracha, but... Well, but there's Sriracha in the drawer. Right. I don't think we have any Franks. No. So, Erin. Yeah? Did you learn something this week? I did. I have great news, Diana. <gasps> I, I think it's great news. I, I suspect it could be great news. Okay. Because I have learned that you can buy avocados in the freezer section. What? So Welch's very recently, like maybe last week, has come out with frozen ripe avocados and they're in the freezer section and they're all chopped up and chunked so that you can make guacamole with good avocados no matter what time of year it is or whether or not you remembered to plan your whole week around your avocados. They kind of look like apples on the bag. Don't care. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god life changed that it actually says welch's frozen avocados are available in grocery stores and they're a budget game changer <laughs> i don't care but the, like fuck it i'll pay for avocados but but now you don't have to plan right you don't have to watch the avocado all week for the right. minute it's ripe oh. i did have some kick-ass avocado yesterday it was delicious but yeah and you know what they're great on eggs at everything right but now i really want like can we order some huevos rancheros to be delivered mm. i mean i have eggs and we could probably get these avocados delivered sure so it is october it is october so it is october and what that means is it's crime cozy erin what's that so for the month of october instead of being like all the other true crime and horror podcasts and telling you horrible, scary stories. Wait, I'm definitely going to do that. Oh, me too. Okay, good. We are going to do that and (laughs) then give you the very comforting and cozy statistics on why this is very unlikely to ever happen to you. That's right. Because as much as we talk about it and read about it and listen about it and and podcast about it, talk about it some more to people that are really not as interested in it as we are. Which is pretty much everybody else in the world. Pretty much. The, the truth is, crime is pretty rare. It is, especially the kinds of crimes that end up on true crime podcasts. Right. Like, getting your bike stolen, getting your car window smashed, relatively common. Being assaulted by a rich white man, pretty common. <sighs> but some of these other crimes, like cannibalism... And having your child kidnapped and murdered. Mm -hmm. Really very, very, very rare. Absolutely. Do you want to hear hear some more stuff that's not not very common? I do. So beginning in June of 2003, authorities in the Washington, D.C. metro area started noticing a pattern to many of the fires that were being set in that area. 
A meeting between the Prince George's County Fire Investigation Unit and Prince George's County is in Maryland Mm -hmm. and the Washington, D.C. Fire Investigation Unit noticed that they'd been experiencing a number of very similar fires. And that's not terribly unusual. They're areas that border one another and they respond to literally thousands of fires every single year. Each of them. Sure. But they noticed that these particular fires seem to be almost identical. Oh. They occurred in the early morning hours between 2 and 6 a.m. They were set at single family homes. Mm. They were set at or near an entrance area on a porch or a deck. With a single cigarette lighter and no (laughs) accelerant. Nope. But they were in similar types of neighborhoods. Interesting. So they decided to look more into this. Good call. Yeah. And they also engaged with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF. And while they were waiting for some results from the local ATF lab, there was another fire that seemed to be related. So they tested the materials from that fire and some from previous fires. And the lab confirmed the following. Some type of polyethylene jug was present. Okay. The container was consistent with that of a gallon container, like a milk jug. Okay. Some type of wick material was present. Mm. Some type of plastic bag was present. And a flammable liquid that they determined to be gasoline was present. Okay. From these results in the investigations, it was determined that at least 24 fires in that area were related. Oh. So a task force and operational guidelines were established. And if you want a very thorough accounting of how all of this worked, you should check out the fireengineering.com story about this case. We'll link to it in the show notes. Mm. They had like everything, how the task force was was set up, what their guidelines were, what they were looking at, who they were working with. It was actually really fascinating. That sounds dangerous, though. Like we might accidentally learn something. (sighs) Yeah. So less than a week after the task force was formed, there was another fire. Mm. And then it seemed like the arsonists took the summer off. Oh. There were no fires in July or August of 2003. And in fact, during that time, when the investigators were looking for whoever was setting these fires, they actually caught another but unrelated arsonist. (laughs) (laughs) Oops, but also yay. Right, yeah, whatever. So whatever our guy was up to during the summer, and I'm only making an assumption at this point that he's a guy. He probably is, though. Arsons tend to be. Yep. Whatever he was up to over the summer, he was back in full force in September. The first fire was on September 4th, and then the 8th, and then the 10th, and then the 14th. Wow. And then on into October, and on into November. Seems to have started right around Labor Day. It does seem like he started right around Labor Day. Hmm. By November of 2003, the arsonist had set 34 known fires. Holy crap. 21 in D.C. proper, 13 in Prince George's County. Mm. The fire set on November 16th enlarged that geographical area a little bit. A single family home on the grounds of a nursing home was set ablaze in Alexandria, Virginia. That's where my grandparents live. Hopefully not in a nursing home with a single family home on the grounds because that's not there anymore. No, that is not where they live. 
So yeah, new fire, new location, nothing slowed down. On Valentine's Day of 2004. Come on, leave Valentine's Day alone. Sorry. It's a bullshit holiday. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) A fire took place in Montgomery County, Maryland, which was another new location. And during the evidence collection, a pair of black pants was recovered. The arsonist removed his pants. Wait for it. (laughs) And on those pants, they found DNA consistent with the DNA from a hair sample from an earlier fire. Oh, the arsonist removed his pants. Mm, They concluded that this DNA was that of the serial arsonist. And witnesses from the Montgomery County fire cooperated with a sketch artist flown in from Houston because apparently none of the local guys were up for it. In the nation's capital. So um, they mentioned, one of the articles I read mentioned that they brought the guy in from Houston because he hand drew the sketches, which led me to believe that maybe a lot of sketches now are more computer generated. Computer generated. And I've they, played with one of those machines. That's really cool. Yeah. There are some online um, like websites where you can do something that's very, very similar. Oh, neat. We should check yeah. that out. Yeah. Um, but they wanted like the, they wanted a hand drawing. They wanted him to interview these people. Like they, they really brought in the, the, the big guy. Gotcha. So he did the sketch. It was released to the public on February 18th. And there were no more fires until April 16th. So total pause for about two months there. From February to April. Mm-hmm. That's not a school holiday. <laughs> Another one was set in May. And then the arsonists seemed to take the summer off again. No mm. more related fires were reported until August 30th. Hmm. On September 20th, 2004, there was a fire at 2804 30th Street Northeast in D.C. And this fire took the life of Lou Edna Jones. Oh, no. A piece of cloth wick was recovered from the scene, which mm-hmm. was determined to be part of an athletic sock. Mm-hmm. And the extracted DNA matched that of the previous samples. I, You're good enough. To set a bunch of fires without getting caught for a couple of years now. About a year. About a year. Okay. Over, yeah, over a couple of school years. I'm, I'm convinced it's a student or a teacher. Um, but, but dumb enough to use clothing you have worn mm-hmm. in the fire. Mm-hmm. I guess they're actually using lots of recycled material because it sounds like milk jugs. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. He's a very eco-conscious, not so much. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he's reducing what's going to the landfill, but then the air pollution is a situation. (laughs) (laughs) Is this more or less friendly than the massive amounts of murder with the bridge? Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) I don't know, because I don't know what the environmental toll is from tossing people off a bridge. Damn it. (laughs) So that was September 20th. There was another fire on September 23rd. And then there was not another fire for 51 days. From the end of September until... December 5th, which is repeal day. (laughs) On repeal day, one of the truly best (laughs) holidays of the year, there was a fire in Arlington County, Virginia, that didn't seem related because the fire setting device was a bit different. Mm -hmm. But near to that fire was a Marine Corps dress cap. And a pair of Marine Corps dress pants. And those were similar to the black pants that had been found near that other fire. And then the next day, there was another fire. A black plastic bag was recovered from that scene as evidence. 
And on it, it had the writing, made in China for the Cornelius... The rest of it was obliterated. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) Diane, are you okay? You seem to have frozen (laughs) mid-word. That's when you like start clicking the the TV or the computer. It froze! Oh, guys, my internet out! What's going on? So that not all the words were, were legible, but based on this, investigators were able to find a Cornelius shop, that's S-H-O-P-P-E, mm-hmm. in England, and they interviewed the owner about what kind of bags and whatnot he was using. Okay. Another fire on December 7th, which made Two it three days, days in a row, oh. and then another one on December 10th. From the December 10th fire, there was another bag with the same writing recovered from the scene but this time they were able to read all of the text and it said made in china for the cornelius shopping bag company this bag company is located in richmond virginia (gasps) it's like an hour from where i used to live i knew you're gonna be excited about that our boss used to live there she lived there for years she did So that company is located in Richmond, and that particular bag was only distributed to two stores in the D.C. metro area, two Circle 7 stores owned by the same person and both right in D.C. Mm. Investigators got in contact with the owner, and he agreed to allow investigators to install video surveillance in his stores. I feel like that's a pretty good deal for a shop owner. Well, like, so if I'm remembering correctly, because I researched this last week, um, he had surveillance, but like he overrode it. Right, right. Um, and they needed a permanent record. Right. So they they enhanced his setup. Do you think it was like a, all right, I'll let you do this, but I get to keep all the equipment once you're done kind of deal? I don't know. Maybe. I'd want it to be. Be like, yeah, you can upgrade my stuff and I'll give you all the tapes. But like, right. I need to get something out of this too. I mean, why not? Is it? I mean, I don't know anything about video surveillance equipment, but for something like a convenience store, is it worthwhile to tear it out, reuse it somewhere else? I mean, it's just going to go sit in a warehouse. Somebody's going to forget about it. Well, right. But it's also a government thing. And so I feel like there are rules and they are happier for it to sit in a warehouse. Probably. But either way, his shop was like very well. Very well surveyed. (laughs) For for a little while. (laughs) So they figured that, you know, the two bags, the two different scenes, whoever was setting the fires was going to come back to the store to, to grab more stuff to set more Makes fires. Makes sense. Well, and, and bags was one of the things they'd been finding all along, right? Right. Yeah. There was always a plastic bag, gallon jug, right. et, cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that, that seems like a reasonable conclusion. It does. Except, I approve. <laughs> except there were no more fires. What? Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> So at this point, investigators engaged the help of the Naval Criminal Investigative Services, NCIS, yes, in order to access the Armed Forces DNA database. Mm. So because at least two of the fire scenes had military clothing left at them, it was suspected that this person had a military background. Right. And everyone in the military has DNA on file, right? So kind of. Okay. Um, they do take the DNA of people in the military, but that DNA is not able to be queried. So you oh. can't take a sample of something you don't know who it is and match it in that particular database. Right. Okay. So, uh, so that wasn't very helpful, but the NCIS investigators gave the other investigators a tip. They were aware of two arson suspects that they believed had been setting car fires about three years ago. 
Ooh. And one of them lived really close to one of those Circle 7 stores. Hmm. So surveillance was immediately set up on this suspect whose name was, and this is a bummer, Thomas Anthony Sweat. Yeah. Yeah. I really tried because it's S-W-E-A-T-T. And I was like, oh, it could be sweet. Yeah, no, it's probably not. No, it's not. I listened to like news stories. Yeah. <laughs> It's sweat. I actually went to school with somebody whose last name was Sweat. It didn't have double T's, but that was their last name was Sweat. That's a bummer. Yeah. So Thomas Anthony Sweat is a, or was a, 50-year-old black male who lived on La Bomb Street Northeast in D.C. And he worked at the KFC on the corner of New York Avenue and Bladensburg Road Northeast in D.C., which was within blocks of several of the connected fires. Uh-huh. Sweat's photograph was shown to the witnesses of the fires, but there wasn't really a positive response. Well, it, it didn't sound like there were... I mean, I guess they did do the sketch. Did he match the... Um, or did they do a sketch? They brought in a sketch artist. They brought in a sketch artist, but it doesn't seem like there were a lot of witnesses. Like, it was between 2 yeah. and 6 in the morning. People didn't see a lot. It was private residences. Right. There was a wick, so the fire wouldn't start immediately. Like, the guy could be gone by the time the fire got anyone's attention. Right. So, I don't know. So they brought in a sketch artist who was like, why the fuck did you fly me to Virginia? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so... The photograph didn't do anything for any of the witnesses, and there was really nothing to indicate that this dude was the right guy. He had no major criminal record. He'd worked for KFC for 20 years. He led a very wow. quiet home life, and he was active in his church. But the military must have had some reason for suspecting him of the car fires. You know, they didn't go into that. So, hmm. They just didn't like him. Well, or maybe they, I mean... Maybe I just didn't find what they had. <laughs> <laughs> what? You didn't research every aspect of this crime? I did not. Well, and Fired. I'm, I'm not sure the NCIS is real forthcoming. With why they think he may have Right, set. yeah. Right. They, <laughs> they keep things to themselves a bit. I feel like that's probably fair. Valid. Well, and it, like he wasn't convicted. Like he... Right, As right. far as I can tell, not even any charges filed in any right. of these car fires. Right, right. So on April 19th of 2005, task force investigators interviewed sweat at work and they they actually asked him if he was the serial arsonist and he replied why would i want to burn those beautiful homes when i'm trying to be a homeowner myself well give up the avocados dude but he didn't say no oh investigators still didn't think he was their guy right but they asked for a dna sample which he provided he cooperated with absolutely everything they kept up the surveillance and they asked the lab to expedite this DNA testing so that mm -hmm. they could move on. They figured he wasn't the guy, but they had to make sure, just get it done. Let's be over with this. But it turns out that our new buddy, Thomas Anthony Sweat's provided DNA was an exact match <gasps> for all of the DNA that they'd recovered from the crime scenes. I, was he just thinking it wouldn't be? Like, why do you give your... DNA if you know it was you. Obviously, they have DNA to compare it to. So, I don't want to be an asshole here, but this is 2003-2004. Yeah. This is not terribly long after the OJ verdict. Right. That kind of thing put a lot of doubt in the minds of people, especially people of color, especially yeah. people that were not economically advantaged. 
that DNA was maybe not a real or exact science. Right. So maybe he just didn't know enough about if I take my sock off and leave it somewhere, there's enough DNA to hook to me. Right. But. And he's also older. Like, yeah, he's 60 now. Right. You and I grew up with that sort of thing. It's true. It's true. I just feel like if somebody says, hey, can I take your fingerprints? It's because they want to compare it to something. Hey, can I take your DNA? It's because they have something they want to check it right. against. But I can also imagine as a middle-aged person of color who works a blue-collar job, and maybe he's like, I better give them what they want. It's true. And and maybe if I bluff, I, I yeah. Yeah. Or maybe he just legit didn't know. Right. You know, middle-aged guy, not very well educated, just didn't know. Yeah. So on April 27th, about eight days after he provided the sample, Sweat was arrested at a KFC in Prince George's County. Apparently he was making the rounds of all of the KFCs. Hmm. During the interview that followed, he admitted to being the Maryland, D.C., Virginia serial arsonist. He also confessed to setting fire to four apartment buildings, six vehicles, 39 residences, and one attempted arson that didn't work out. (laughs) And I tried to start a fire. It didn't go anywhere, but, you know, just so you know. But, you know, if you're wondering about that one. During the search of his home, investigators found 75 videotapes, which were recordings of news stories of the fires that he had set over the last two years as well as videos of a number of military personnel in uniform and Metro Transit drivers in uniform Mm. who were unaware that they were being recorded. Oh. On May 10th, 2010, just two weeks after his arrest, Sweat signed a plea agreement in which he pleaded guilty to five counts of arson of buildings used in interstate commerce because he tried to burn down a couple businesses. Right. Two counts of the use of a firearm during a crime of violence... Six counts of possession of an unregistered firearm, Mm. one count of first-degree murder while armed, and one count of second-degree murder while armed. Wow. In further interviews with the task force, Sweat provided information on more than 303 fires for which he was responsible, going all the way back to 1978, bringing his known fire count to 353. Holy crap. That is... He... Wow. He got away with things for so long and did so much shit and never got caught. Never got caught. On September 12th, 2005, he was sentenced to two life terms plus an additional 136 years just to make sure he'll never be eligible for parole. Right. He is currently serving his time at the Federal Correctional Institution in Terre Haute, Indiana. So, Aaron, I bet you're asking a question. Yeah. Why? Why did he set all those fires? Right. So it turns out that Sweat's uh, gay. Okay. And when he would see an attractive man, he'd follow him. Okay. But instead of, you know, talking to him or something, he'd set fire to the guy's house or car. I. That makes no sense whatsoever. Also doesn't seem effective. No, you're not going to get a date that way. No. No, no, no. I, I mean, unless like. If he was a firefighter and he was like the one arriving on the scene to put the fire out, that would make a little bit of sense. Right. But it does That's seem not- like he liked men in uniform, but military or bus drivers. Or bus drivers. Well, those were the tapes. It was all yeah. in, the, in the military or in Metro Transit uniforms. Right. That's just a very strange, like, there are lots of people in uniforms. Right. But those bus drivers. Two. Yeah. 
So he he liked men in uniform. Mm-hmm. He'd follow them home. Mm-hmm. And each time he'd set a fire, he'd use a similar gadget. He'd fill a milk jug with gasoline. Yep. He'd plug the opening with a piece of clothing, usually his own. Ooh, it's like a gesture. Yeah, that he would use as a wick. The wick would burn for more than 20 minutes. Right. And after the fire consumed that plastic container, the gas fumes would escape and catch fire. In the almost 400 fires he set, at least three people died. I mean, that's still pretty good odds, but... um, Right, one per hundred. But but still, that sucks. So, Aaron, Mm -hmm. are you worried? Well, I mean... Those things are readily available. Gasoline, milk, jug, sock. Am I in danger? You're not. I mean, I am not an attractive man in uniform. But also... No. I wouldn't worry over much about this. So the risk of dying in a fire in 2016, which is the last year for which numbers are available... That is also the last year for mine. (laughs) Excellent. It seems to be like a two-year, two years out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Compile all the data. Um, so the risk for dying in a fire in 2016 is 10.9 per million, which reduces to 1 in 91,743. And that's for the entire United States. The relative risk of dying in a fire in Minnesota is less than that. You are 20% less likely than average to die in a fire in Minnesota. Which is interesting because I would think accidental fires, there are, there's a lot of fire here, right? Well, in the winter? So that was also my thought. I was talking to Jeff about this when I was researching the story because my thought would have been in colder climates right, that you'd have more likely. fire. Because we have like furnaces and a lot of houses have natural gas, which they don't necessarily in other parts of the country and all of that. Yeah. No, no. We, we actually have far fewer fires. But in Alaska, you got to watch out. Yeah. Because you are 240% more likely than average to die in a fire. Interesting. And if you were wondering if you made the correct decision in moving to Minnesota, you did. Okay. Because Virginia lines up exactly with the national average. Ah. If you really want to minimize your risk, then you should move to Delaware, Hawaii, North Dakota, or Wyoming, as they had no fire deaths at all in 2016. Wow. But then you have to live there. (laughs) The trade-off. I mean, Hawaii, but... Yeah. North Dakota. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people love it. I'm sure they do, but it is not my place. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it would be even colder. It is. Yeah. And flatter. And flatter. Well, so I feel okay about my odds of dying in a fire then. Right. I mean, I live in a 106-year-old house with original wiring, so... Yours might be a little higher. <laughs> yeah. As we discussed a couple weeks ago, I'm incapable of starting a fire, so right. I'm not going to do it to myself. Nope. You're probably in good shape. Good deal. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. It always amazes me when there's somebody who has committed so many crimes. I, I'm trying to think of things of significance. I mean, brush my teeth, but like that I have done 350 300 times. times. Right. Yeah, no, it's a lot. Like other Read than a book, maybe right. Well, well, the other thing I wanted to mention too is that um, deaths in fires keep going down. There are fifteen yeah. percent fewer deaths in fires than there were ten years ago. The numbers just keep coming down. That's awesome. Yeah, better response times, better fire safety. Yeah, fewer fires. Like, yeah. I mean, you think of, again, like houses of my vintage. A lot of them have burned to the ground because yeah, knob and tube and not done properly. And right, like in my house, some asshole who thinks he knows 
things did things that yeah. we've had to fix. Yeah. Well, and I, I think probably too, like the technology to get people there faster, to yep. have the fire alerts, to have the whatever in your house or your building or to put it out real fast. And then yep. there, I feel like there's some pretty good fire education. Yeah. You know, Liam went to a birthday party. There's a um, fire museum or like a fire Ooh. firefighting museum yeah. in the Northeast. And he went to a birthday party there a few years ago and they've got, it's not a dollhouse, but it's kind of like a dollhouse. Yeah. And they show all the different kinds of fire hazards with like little fake flames in there. Yeah. And he was, I don't know, four or five when he went to this fire. Or <laughs> when he went to the fire <laughs> party. And so they were talking about like turning the stove off and not throwing towels on top of it. Cause yes. so many of us around here have gas stoves. Yes. Um, so that's a legit threat. Um, but then the, he, the guy that was running the presentation got to the end. He's like, well, there's one major area that you've all like, nobody's mentioned. And the kids are like, I don't, I don't know. You know, I think we've mentioned everything. And he's like, well, cigarette smokers. And every one of the kids looked at their parent and was like, what's that, mom? Awesome. <laughs> right. Well, um, no, I bet that plays a big role. It plays a huge role because not as many people smoke as they used to. Yeah. But it never occurred to me in a room full of people my age, none of us smoke anymore. No. Um, no. You know, whether, I mean, I never did. So I never had to quit, thankfully. But, right. But I think a lot of my friends quit around the time they started thinking about having kids or maybe yeah. before. And you know, those, those people I know that did regularly smoke quit years ago, way before kids. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, none of our kids even knew what cigarettes were. That's insane. Yeah. That's cool. So Aaron. Yeah. Do you have a story for me? I do. Ooh. I do. You got all excited about it later. Or, or, Jesus, fuck. Yeah, later I got really excited about it. You got super it. excited about it later. You got really excited about it earlier. I I'm know. Excited. So it was a story that I didn't know, but like knew some of the names but and that was cool. Now I know it. Um, but so, all right. So here's how the thought process went. It was last week for the very first October episode, I did a cannibal. And how could you get more Halloween than a cannibal? True. And I polled people at work. I was like, okay, so other than a cannibal, what's the scariest crime you can think of? <laughs> no one had any good answers. So then Jordan and I talked about it and I went another route, which is like, what is something you might realistically be afraid might happen to you? Right. So poisoning. Oh. Yeah. Because, um, you know, you always kind of think like somebody hands you something or is is this this tastes a little bit off did somebody put something in it and not like I didn't go the route of like somebody slipped something in your drink at a bar which I feel like is actually something that happens right but um but like somebody trying to kill you like those cute little mugs where after you drink everything it says in the bottom you've been poisoned like that <laughs> wait those exist Yes. <laughs> Might need one of those. <laughs> they do. All right. So Jane Elizabeth Lathrop Stanford. Do you know who that is? Maybe. Well, she was born August 25th, 1828. I was not she... born yet. No, me neither. Not for many years. Not even my mom. No. <laughs> <laughs> not even my grandma. Who, who I do occasionally refer to as La Vieille. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. not that old the weirdest relationship with your family yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
She's like, yes, yes, I do. That is a fact. We are a bunch of weirdos. (laughs) (laughs) She comes by it, honestly. Mm Mm-hmm. She was a co-founder of Stanford University. No way. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so in 1885, she that's when they like started everything. But it really opened in 1891. So it took some time to get it all started. So her husband, Leland Stanford, was the, was the other co-founder, right? And so it was mostly in his name. But he didn't live very long after it opened. He died, I think, two years after it officially opened opened yeah in 1893 so she was pretty much left in charge of everything that's cool I mean bummer but cool but cool well and it's always been like um a co-ed college and it's always like she was very very involved with everything at the school so like she's a pretty cool kick-ass woman yeah so um they started the university as a memorial for their child Leland Stanford Jr who died when he was 15 years old and I'm not sure how he died but they um so cute By apparently being in the 1800s Well right <laughs> But I mean 15 I feel like you've made it pretty far it's not like a small child who has died Yeah but a UTI will kill you It's true in the 1800s <laughs> So they had been on a trip to Italy and he died in 1884, so the year before they started the started starting the school. Um, so wait, when was she born? All right, so she was born in 1828. So she was an old mom. She was an old mom. Well, he was 15 in 1884. Right. But yeah, no, she was. They they did a lot of things. Well, and they were very very wealthy. Like I I feel like they. I don't know when they met and married. I didn't look that up, but I feel like they sort of had their lives and then had a kid and loved him very much, but then he only lived a short while. Right. But yeah, she would have been like in her mid-30s. Yeah. That's... For that time. Well, it's old anyway, but Well, like, I had my kid in my mid-30s and it was old. Right, (laughs) right. A hundred odd years later. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if they hadn't been married very long, but I I Well, or was he like, was he a menopause baby? Maybe. Was he their only child? He was their only child. So possibly. But when he died while they were on their trip to Ad- to Italy, Leland Sr., so dad, apparently turned to his wife and said, the children of California shall be our children. And they decided they would start Stanford University in their son's memory. Oh. Which I thought was really cute. That is nice. So um, then Leland dies and she is running this university on her own. For a long time, the board, like, tried to convince her to shut it down for a while. Like, uh, a lot of the investors were concerned after Leland died that, like, there was no man running things. And so they pulled out. And so there were some financial difficulties. And she was like, absolutely not. This doesn't stop. We keep going. Like, I'll sell my jewelry if I have to. And we'll make this go. And in fact, in 1897, so what is that, four years after her husband died, she traveled to England in order to try to sell all of her roots rubies and other jewels in order to fundraise for the university. Wow. Unfortunately, she didn't find a buyer. Um, So I don't know if it was because she wanted too much for them or it just wasn't. I don't know. She didn't find a buyer. Uh, But in 1905, she wrote in her will that the university trustees after she died should sell her jewels and use those funds as a permanent endowment for the university, which they did. And originally it was $500,000. It is now worth $20 million. And continues to fund books and other publications and that, like, literary uh, stuff for the school. I could not. I mean, my jewelry might fund 
a down payment on a used sedan. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Tobin was just trying to pluck the diamond from my ring. And while I am extremely fond of the diamond in my ring, like it's not going to fund a university for a hundred years. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> apparently there's a really great plaque that shows her offering her jewels to Athena. So goddess oh. of wisdom and they've put that in the library. And so lots, lots in her oh, memory. That's lovely. So she just seems like an amazing woman. Like I'm kind of in love with her. Yeah. However, her life didn't go well. January 14th, 1905, she was at home and she was drinking some water in a bottle and it tasted funny. And so she had the amazing foresight to make herself puke and throw up all the water which is a good thing she then had her maid and her secretary taste the water like not take a big gulp but like taste (laughs) it Um, i think this is poison taste it yeah that was i was like wait maybe i have overestimated this woman she made her servants drink the water um and they said yeah that doesn't it's not right and so she sent it off to like basically a pharmacy to have some tests done And what they discovered is there was enough strychnine in there for almost instant death had she drank the whole thing. Wow. So someone was indeed trying to poison her. So do we have any idea? We talked about bitter almond with cyanide last week. Mm -hmm. Do we know what that might smell or taste like? Strychnine (laughs) is a highly toxic, colorless, but bitter drink or like poison. Okay. It is derived from seeds very much like cyanide. Like the wrath of Jesus. Right. But it didn't say anything about what it smelled like, but just that it had a very, like you can tell. It, it's not something you can hide in things very easily. Especially water. Especially water. <laughs> so usually it's used as a pesticide. So it's mm. readily available or was. I'm not sure what the rules of all of that are at the moment, but. Well, no, it was, it's bread poison. Yeah, but is it still a major ingredient and you can just go buy? I mean, I can go look at the bag in my attic. But probably. (laughs) But yeah, I don't, I don't, I've never looked at the ingredients. I just know it does the trick. Yeah. So, you know, used for killing rats and birds and other small vertebrates, says Wikipedia. (laughs) And the way that it causes death is you have like convulsions and eventually your body seizes up all your muscles seize up and you can't breathe because your your diaphragm no longer works and you suffocate that's terrible so it is terrible and it's painful and you know it's happening before it happens and and your mind is like clear yes yes until and, and you can communicate what's happening until you no longer can communicate what's happening so i may have identified a new worst fear We'll get there. It's going to be okay. Okay. Stanford was horrified that this had happened. And she left her home. She said, I'm never coming back. She moved out. And immediately they they were looking at like, okay, well, who do we think did this? And they decided Elizabeth Richmond was, and she was, she was one of Stanford's maids, was a pretty good suspect. She had worked previously in Britain. And apparently she liked to tell stories to all of the other help around the house that uh, about like English and, and or about aristocrats, mm-hmm, that word, mm-hmm. who had been poisoned by their servants. And like that was basically she was a true crime podcaster before there's such things. <laughs> podcasts, and that made her suspicious. So 
Stanford hired a PI to look into her mm-hmm. and to be very, very discreet. Like it didn't get investigated. It may have been investigated by police as well. But even after that, she was like, I just don't trust her. She fired her. The PI looked into her background and couldn't find anything. There was no evidence that she had ever purchased strychnine. There was no evidence that she had, you know, planned on killing her boss. Or just nothing. So, but she's gone anyway. Better safe than sorry, I guess. Right, yeah. So at this point, Stanford is ill, not from the strychnine, but just ill. It's chilly. She has a cold. She's not feeling well. She's like, you know what? I need a vacation. This this week has sucked. And so I'm going to go to Hawaii, and then I'm going to go to Japan. Like It's a world tour. Well, she's fairly elderly by this point, too. Yeah, 1905. So. She's 70-ish. Yeah, look back at her date. But yes, yeah, almost 70. So she decides that she's going to go on this trip and she gathers up all of the staff that she wants to take with her and they prepare. And on February 15th, they set off for Hawaii at the Moana Hotel, (laughs) which my kids would think was amazing. (laughs) On February 28th, she, uh, she started to feel really sick. And something that she ate, I mean, she, she's traveling. It's the early 1900s. She ate something. Also cruise ship food. Right, <laughs> right. Little rotavirus. So she asked for um, like bicarbonate, so like to settle her stomach. Yeah. And she was given that. Her personal secretary, who is Bertha Burner, who was somebody that she was very, very close to. They had been together for over 20 years. Uh, when she passed, when Stanford passed away, she had a will. And in her will, she left money to each of the household staff. They each got $1,000. And I am assuming that was $1,000 in 1905 money. Right. But it wasn't clear. Burner, so however, yeah, got Fifteen thousand dollars. Oh, it is nineteen oh five money because that is equivalent to about a hundred thousand dollars today. Yeah, that's a lot of money. And was gifted a home, so they were very, very close. She was definitely wow. the favorite. So, so she was the one that prepared the the drink for her, put it in the water, and she drank it. At eleven fifteen that evening, Stanford suddenly like cried out. I think everybody was in bed and she she yells she's like somebody has to call a doctor. I've been poisoned again. I can't like my body is doing weird things and I'm sick and I think I'm dying and I need help. Wow. She tried to puke and she couldn't. So it had been a couple of hours since she had had her drink. And so if it was poison it was just too late to get it all up. It was already affecting her. So they call the doctor. The doctor arrives. He tried to give her um, a, a mixture that would make her vomit up mm. everything. It, it didn't work because her jaws were starting to freeze up and she was uh. losing control of her body and she couldn't, she couldn't drink any sort of medicine. So this is a, a quote from her in the book that Robert Cutler wrote. And I didn't write down the title of the book, but he's written like essentially a biography of her and, and mostly of her death. She said, my jaws are stiff. This is a horrible death to die. And then she was seized by a spasm, which got worse and worse and worse. Her jaws clamped shut. Um, Her feet and her legs were like twisted and contorted. She clenched her hands into fists. She threw her head back. I mean, she didn't. Her body threw her head back. Um, And then she lost the ability to breathe and suffocated and died. Uh. They took and tested both her body 
in a, an autopsy and also what she had had to drink, the bicarbonate solution. And both of them had strychnine in lethal levels. Ugh. So she was dead from poisoning. After, so then they took it to like the, apparently, I know nothing about the legal system, just right. know this. So they had to rule it a murder and that involved a jury. And so there was there was testimony from the doctors, from oh, the like staff. An yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And the coroner's jury took only two minutes to say, yeah, one hundred percent it was strychnine poisoning. It was in the bicarbonate that um and somebody put it there on purpose and we don't know who it was, but somebody definitely murdered her. We're hundred percent on board with that. They talked about where the where the bottle came from that had the medication in it. And it was apparently purchased in California after the time that she fired Richmond, but before she went on this trip. And she'd had it with her the whole time. Mm -hmm. So pretty much anybody who was on the trip with her would have had access to it. So somewhere in that time frame, somebody tampered with it. Um, And and it had also not ever been opened or used. That was the first time they... They opened and used it. Hmm. So they did this. The The jury took two minutes. They came back. They were like, yes, it's absolutely poisoning. We're 100% sure. Somebody did it on purpose. Like, we know where the bottle came from. We know who had access to it. We just have to figure out who it was. Uh, however, then an article ran in the Times in March of 1915, so possibly several days later, and basically said, oh, no, we think that this response was coached, that the doctor who originally uh, was there for her death and then examined and ran tests on the bicarbonate and everything else, he told the jury what to say, and they may not have come to that decision on their own. The person responsible for this was the president of Stanford University. He's the one that pushed through the the article and also championed this theory that it was not caused by strychnine. Her death wasn't caused by strychnine, that it wasn't a murder. He had, he came out to Hawaii just days after her death, hired a local doctor who went back and looked at everything and said, actually, she died of heart failure. It was totally normal. There was no murder. There was no nothing. And then. That is not how you die of heart failure. No, it's not, which uh, for years and years and years, and even if you go and look up information on her now, there are sources that say that's how she, she died of heart attack. It had nothing to do with poison. Like all of that is just not in the account whatsoever. So that was kind of weird. And when I was reading this story, my first thought was, okay, so the university sent him out there because they didn't want any bad press. Right. He was the president of the university. She was its benefactor. Like he was trying to cover it up for the university's sake. I can kind of forgive him. Like it's, however, it may have been more than that. So Jane Stanford was very, very involved in the university's dealings. Mm -hmm. She would be in constant contact with the president of the university. Um, And she sat on the board, even when she got a little bit older and she gave control over to the board, she was still president of the board. Like she was always very, very involved. And she would keep close tabs on like the faculty. And if somebody was doing something that she didn't approve of, or if she didn't think they were doing a good job, she would write and she would say, you have to fire this person. You need to hire this. Like in all of the day-to-day decisions, she was very involved. She didn't love Jordan. And she would second guess some of his decisions. She found that he was, he played favorites with certain faculty members who were not necessarily like great 
professors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she didn't love that. And she actually persuaded one of the faculty members that she did like, a professor, Goebel, to to let her know, to be her spy and let her know what Jordan was doing and kind of keep tabs on all of that. Right around the time that she was poisoned the first time, Goebel was looking into the university and into Jordan and found some sketchy things. And I don't know what those sketchy things were, just that they were of concern. And apparently in 1904, Goebel said or wrote or kept in his diary and basically said that that she was at the point that Stanford was at the point where she was ready to fire Jordan. So then for him to go all the way out there and be like, but this wasn't a murder at all is very suspicious. Uh-huh. That is the entire story. Wow. There was never an arrest. There was never uh, an official suspect. Jordan was certainly never a suspect. Uh, They did point out that the only person present at both of the poisonings was Berner. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't find any sort of motive. So she was very, very close to Stanford. They were good friends. Like, But she was the person who was there. So, And she got a lot more money than... She did. She she stood to gain a lot. But she also was treated very, very well and was making a good salary and had a really good life and got to take these trips and got so... Well, and may not have known necessarily what was in store. What was in the will. Yeah, I I don't know whether that was public knowledge or not. Um, So it was really interesting because Jordan did do a good enough job covering it up that it really kind of got swept under the rug for years and years and years. And it wasn't until far later when people were looking into it and they were like, okay, so this isn't a heart attack. That's not what happens when you have heart failure. And went back and looked at the accounts and all of the other information and kind of uncovered the strychnine poisoning. And there are some theories that somehow Jordan persuaded Berner to to be the one who actually poisoned her, that, mm-hmm. you know, Burner had nothing to gain from it. Jordan really did. Jordan wasn't on site. Burner was. So maybe they were working together. Huh. I don't know. So completely unsolved, completely covered up. Mystery will never be solved. Wow. Yeah. So it is possible that you will go to the pharmacy or you will pick up a glass of water that has been sitting by your bed, refilled and fresh every night for most of your adult life, and this night it'll be filled with poison and it might kill you. But it's not very possible. Well, good, because I actually have a hydro flask that I keep near the bed that I refill myself. Right, but do you leave it unattended for any length of time? I mean, I do sleep like the dead. So, (laughs) but here are some stats on poisoning. All right. My stats also come from 2016. (laughs) And I looked at a couple of sources, but mostly the people that do the poison hotline. What are they called? The poison control? Yeah. Poison control. Sure. Is it just poison control center? I think so. Poison control. Poison control. So I looked at their website. You called Mr. Yuck. (laughs) Well, I I looked up online. In 2016, there were quite a few calls to poison control where people were actually exposed to poison. Because, of course, a lot of calls to poison control, there wasn't any exposure. Like, they're just, somebody is concerned. Um, That's when I called him. Right. (laughs) Liam ate a finger full of butt paste when he was a kid. 
little. <laughs> there you go. Yep. <laughs> um, and then there are a lot of calls to poison control that are just, hey, I have these pills. I don't know what they are. This is what they look like. Can you identify them for me? Or there's this substance, whatever. So there, a lot oh. of it's just informational calls. That never would have occurred to me to call. No. To ask them to identify what I have. That's, I yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I always just look it up on the internet, which yeah. does a pretty good job if it names one of the things that i have had in my possession i pretty much believe it well but, or if you, like it's a white oval pill and it says nine through three on one side yeah and wqb on the other whatever it is right right but apparently you can also call poison control and they can do that for you well that's cool right good to know so most of their calls are that so they do receive a ton of calls i think they were saying they receive like 15 every second or something i mean like just an oh. astronomical number there are apparently 55 main poison control uh, answering services, I guess, throughout the United States. Holy moly. So. No idea. Um, but 77.8% of all of the calls are accidental poisonings. So my, and most of them are children under six. Um, like my far kid ate above. a finger full of butt paste. Exactly. Exactly that. Somebody has gotten into something or they've taken too much medication or I, I gave my child five milliliters of Benadryl and it was supposed to be half a milliliter <laughs> of Benadryl and what do I do? Of the ones that are intentional, so that like uh, 18% because there are also some that I think were like exposure. I forget what the third category was, but there are about 18% that are intentional poisonings. 12 Twelve of that eighteen percent, so all but about five, five and a half percent, are attempted suicides or successful suicides. Sure. So, those are things that you could be concerned about. But as far as somebody actually intending to poison you, it is a point oh four percent chance that you would ever be intentionally poisoned by someone, which doesn't sound all that great except of those only like five percent have any sort of uh like life-threatening or long-term consequences okay so almost every single even intentional poisoning has no side effects or consequences whatsoever wow or it's so light and quick it doesn't even it doesn't even require a follow-up visit Wow. You go to the doctor once, you whatever, you're good. So your chances of being poisoned are out of every 100,000 people okay. in 2016, 39 were intentionally poisoned out of every 100,000 wow. Americans. So it is not as good as some of your stats mm. or as being eaten by a cannibal, which is like never, ever, ever going to happen. Rare. But also... I mean, if you aren't actively pissing someone off, you have a pretty good chance of never being poisoned. So here's the problem. Mm -hmm. I am often actively pissing people off. <laughs> In that case, I would advise you to try to keep that men that you're pissing off because <laughs> women are by far more likely to use poison as a form of murder or attempted murder than men. Done and done. There you go. I think I mostly piss off men. So that works out. <laughs> So yeah, 2016, there were only, well, I say only, these numbers are kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, but they're not. 100,000 people is a lot of people. 100,000 people is a lot of people. And 39 of those were poisoned. Yeah. And of those, like, 
15% had any sort of lasting effect. And that that's not 15% died. It's right. 15% required a follow-up visit. Which could just be, are you done puking it out yet? Right, right. Wow. So when you started talking about poison control, I flashed onto these sheets of stickers that we used to get when I was a kid yeah. with Mr. Yuck and poison control. And like I'm picturing it on my grandma's phone in the kitchen and yes. everywhere. Yeah. And much like stranger kidnapping, we were led to believe that if we were not kidnapped by a stranger and killed, we were likely going to be poisoned to death. Right. Right. As a kid, you are much, much, much more likely to ingest something toxic. Right. But this was also by the time I had hit school age and I knew not to drink shit from under the sink. Right. Right. And that's what most of it is. My kid got into this or had too much of this or right. whatever. Yeah. Yep. So really not something that you need to be worried about. All right. Awesome. That includes, by the way, poisoned Halloween candy. Just not a thing. So struggled through that one, but now I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. That's really fascinating. So we are probably not going to die in a fire. We are not. We don't have to worry about dying in a fire. You're probably not going to poison me. <laughs> I am not. I mean, I am female. And I think out of all of my friends, you have the right knowledge. I mean, I do a lot of research. Also, I could do more research and have plausible deniability. You could. Whereas most people, you have to worry about your search history. I'd be like, I have a true crime podcast. I researched poison for this story. Right. Also, I might make a really good suspect because I have a true crime podcast and I just said on the podcast that I could do research on how to kill you. Well, and also, like, I have been known to drink things out of bottles at your home. It is true. It is true. And I know before you come over what you are likely to drink. Right. I mean, there's really only a couple of options. Of what there I'm really do. aren't very many. But like if I wanted, if I wanted to, if I poisoned you, which I'll never do. But if I did, I would poison you with one of the cups that says you got poisoned in the bottom. <laughs> I hope that if this happens, that I will be lucid enough at the end of it to be like, yeah, you did. <laughs> I'm a little angry about the dying, but I'm pretty proud about how you did it. <laughs> right. I mean, like, of all the ways. Right. Although, you could always just induce vomiting. And if it's strychnine, you'll be okay. Well, I think we proved last week. I'm not much of a puker. No, but I feel like if you really were motivated. So, Diana, I think that we have some shout outs. At least one. I would like to give a special shout out mm-hmm. to somebody who has started following our Crime Crazy Instagram uh-huh. And I haven't listened to their podcast yet, but it's called the Bumblebutt Podcast. Oh, my God. <laughs> I saw that, too. And I would like to say to the people of the Bumblebutt Podcast, Magustalations, I see what you did there. <laughs> Hail Satan. Crime Crazy is sponsored by M. Gillum, Elizabeth Wilder, and Dave Hatt. Woohoo! Show sponsors support Crime Crazy through Patreon at the $10 per month level or above. Thank you. And are awesome. Yeah, you are. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. It is the first time we are recording in October, so it is time for shout outs. Yay! 
So we have a special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, obviously our sponsors of M, Elizabeth, and Dave. I had dinner with Elizabeth last week, and it was delightful. Hey, Beth. <laughs> and a huge thank you to our other Patreon supporters, Brian Williams. Woo! Jonathan Schaefer. Woo! Michael Carroll. Woo! Molly Smith. Woo! Patty Snow. <laughs> Yay! Who is amazing at liking all of our posts. Thanks, uh, Patty. Yes. And Peg Poole. Woo! Hi, Thanks. Mom. <laughs> <laughs> also, Peg, I don't know about this pumpkin spice Baileys. We're going to need to talk more. <laughs> All right. If you'd like to support Crime Crazy, please check out our Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash crimecrazypod or search for Crime Crazy Podcast. All patrons get a monthly shout out, much like the one you just heard. Yes, indeed. We also have a review shout out. We have a review from Foggy Star. It was not a five star review. It was not. But here, we've said this before, and here's the really, really great thing about true crime podcasts. It is a hot thing right now. There are hundreds of them in all different styles and formats. Mm -hmm. If you don't like us, you can find one you like. That's okay. It's fine. Mm -hmm. We're not everybody's cup of tea. Most most people's, but you know, there's the oddball. True story. (laughs) But we do give shout outs for every review. So thanks for the review, Foggy Star. Absolutely. Although, for the rest of you, we do prefer the five-star reviews. Just in general, it's good for our egos. But you know what? Whatever. If you don't mind. If you'd like to receive a shout-out, please rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast catcher of choice. We give shout-outs for all reviews, but as mentioned before... Five-star ones make us happy. (laughs) (laughs) You can follow Crime Crazy on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash crimecrazypod. From there, catch up on the conversation by joining one or both of the Crime Crazy groups. We have both the public and the private version. You can follow us on Twitter at Crime Crazy Pod. You can follow us on Instagram at Crime Crazy Pod. You can visit our website at crimecrazypodcast.com or email us at crimecrazypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter. You're at Aaron Plyme. I'm at Diana underscore Seacon. Follow us on Instagram. You're at Eplime. And I'm at Diana underscore Seacon. What? No. <laughs> Guys, I was wrong. Finally did it. I I definitely was betting on the it was never going to happen. Like, I just figured at some point you'd be like, fuck it. This is what my name is. You have to know that telling me that it's never going to happen is the best I way to make know. sure it does. <laughs> I know. But it had been, I was right for many weeks. I was trying for many weeks. I know, but I was right that whole time. <laughs> I took an entirely wrong tactic. <laughs> so she's official. She's a Diana. No longer true story. classy broad. I am always, always a classy broad. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so, Miss Classy Broad, do you have any advice for us this week? I do. I'm ready. Just, like, say hi. Hmm. If you see a hot guy... In a military or metro transit uniform or really whatever floats your boat or gal or non-binary person or just some variety of consenting adult. Human adult. Please. Yeah. Although, I mean, if you're not sexually attracted, but you just really love puppies, you can also say hi to the puppy. Different. Different. But yes. Yes. (laughs) So if you see an attractive person Mm -hmm. who is attractive to you. Mm Mm-hmm. Just 
say hi. Like, don't be a creeper. Right. Don't slip them a Mickey. No. Really don't burn their house down. No, you're never going to get a date that way, ever. No. Like, I don't even know what the end game there is. No. Uh Uh-uh. There's there's not even a fantasy that would result in you ending up with that person. Well, also, I've never had my house burned down, but I am guessing that that is not the moment at which I think, man... I could use some right about now. Right? (laughs) You have other things on your mind at that point. Yeah. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So just... Don't do that. Just say hi. Yeah. Be nice. Don't be a creeper. Right. Just just say hi. Smile. If you're shy, wave from a distance. Yeah. Get a puppy. It's a good excuse to walk by their house with (laughs) your puppy. (laughs) They might say hi to you. Never know. Call your people. Call your people. And don't end up on next week's episode. You can follow Crime Crazy on Facebook. We're at Facebook. Facebook. Nope. Ah. No chickens there. (laughs) You can follow Crime Crazy on Facebook. I almost said chicken. <laughs> Chicken.com. God damn it. <laughs> I really didn't poison her or give her that much to drink. So this one got me to thinking about a few years ago when I lived in Northeast, uh, which is Northeast Minneapolis. Yes. Um, there was a fire on Johnson Street. A house burned yes. to the ground. Yeah. Just, just all the way to the ground. And that was a bummer. I didn't know the people, but I drove past there all the time. But a few months later, there was this article in the Star Tribune, which is the the Minneapolis newspaper, about how people were buying houses in Northeast and then tearing them down and building like houses that don't belong in Northeast. Right, right. Um, and they put a picture of this lot, and it was like, "You insensitive motherfuckers! That house burned down. Nobody no demolished kidding. it to build a McMansion on it." They, they just did not research. They just found a vacant lot northeast, and they're like, like this one. So where I used to live, um, we always would say like twice a year, but um, that that. Wow. <laughs> Thinking, talking, everything is hard. It's all hard. Which was what the area of the of our town that um it was like on the water it's where they did a lot of crabbing it was it was sort of a community there's like an area that is guinea but it also was kind of a culture um and so wait hold on Uh uh-huh for those of us of the northern persuasion yes crabbing is an activity with an animal yes okay it is where you go into the water and catch crabs usually at this point illegally because you can't take but so many blue crabs because they're they're not thriving in the Chesapeake Bay area at the moment. But um, yeah, you go into the water, you get the crabs on oh, your boat. You. you make a shit ton of money, so much money, and then you bring them back. Um, David actually one summer made crab pots for one of the uh, prominent families that lived out there and, and owned a crabbing business. He and got crabs high. Yes, yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> Have you never caught a crab? Why would I do that?